Hello, welcome to Transformation and Transcendence Roundtable Podcast. Uh, Joshua Morrow, a therapist and life coach, is here with me. I think we're gonna we're kind of going with a duo here today, or a duet. I don't know which one it is. Uh, so you know, we'll we'll carry on, and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to give you some really helpful material to help you on your path of self transformation and fulfillment. So I thought I'd start today, Joshua and everyone, by uh, talking about self-will, pride, and fear, three uh, major faults that, uh, from our shadow self or our lower self that obstructs our light and keeps us from being our best self, and, and discuss them and how to deal with them in our lives. But let me do a little business before I jump in. I keep forgetting to do the business. So please, uh, if you're on YouTube or wherever you're at, whatever podcast form you're at, please subscribe and like, and uh, that will help us. And you can share too, that would be great. And um, if you want to reach Joshua for life coaching or for Reed or Ben, uh, I think best number I can give you right now, email is fsollers, that's my name, S-O-L-L-A-R-S, fsollers at msp.edu. And if you, uh, you can also call 248-705-3798, 248-705-3798 if you want to reach us. Because some of this material would work best if you had somebody helping you work with it. Okay, we also have a new book out called... Uh, uh, food for Thought, Psyche, Spirit, and Soul. Joshua has a contribution in the book. It's a series of stories and anecdotes, uh, you know, uh, points of view from my some of my sessions that I received, just human interest stories, poems, sayings, that kind of thing to help uplift and, you know, and inspire for your spiritual and emotional development. Okay, thanks. So getting back to uh, what we're going to talk about today, pride, self-will, and fear. These are three major faults that obstruct spiritual development. And when we posit the other side, the virtues uh, that would correspond uh, with pride, self-will, and fear, pride would be dignity, human dignity, self-valuing, uh, self-liking, and uh, easygoing sense of uh, you know your place in the world, right? This dignity. Uh, Self-will would be kind of an easygoing uh, assertion and capacity to be active in life and to help others and, and to move your life forward, to take on kind of the issues of life in a rather joyful way, even when there's pain, that you meet the pain and you move through it. So it begins to be a more positive, life becomes a more positive experience as you accept pain and move through it. Uh, a corresponding thing with fear, virtue with fear, would be courage, that you have the courage to do these things. You develop resilience. You meet pains, you meet struggles with resilience and a positive attitude. And, uh, you know, your dependency reduces so that you can be yourself in the world in spite of uh, the worldly winds or other people uh, that may think otherwise of you or, or your positive kinds of ways of being in the world, 
you manage to handle all that, you know, so that's courage. So we have uh, dignity, uh, easygoing uh, assertion and positive aggression. And then we have uh, courage as complements to the pride, self-will, and fear. So what is pride? Pride is this, we don't mean pride as in terms of self-confidence, self-dignity. That's again why Trent, I, I compared it to the virtue. What we mean by that is hubristic pride, arrogant pride, the pride of er elevating yourself above others, you know, arrogating yourself so that you are more important in your own mind than other people, that in some sense what you do, you do uh, top other people to win out over them, to triumph over them. It's a sense that, you know, you're not treating your neighbor as yourself, like the commandment would suggest. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself, but you're putting them in a different position and you're trying to perhaps provoke envy or be up here high so that they look up to you and then they esteem you and this is going to make you feel better about yourself. You think typically this does not work like that. It ties you to other people's point of view of you. You become more and more, you know, you might say chained to the opinions of others when you operate in life that way. Because what you're trying to do is get, you're seeing yourself through their eyes and get their approval. So you're into appearances when that is your orientation towards life. When you're in your own dignity, it's not appearances, it's being values. It's about the truth of the matter, trying to be kind, trying to treat yourself no less than the next person, no more as best you can. Okay. Self-will is uh, not free will. We all have free will, and that's important. Uh, we need free will to make decisions, to grow. This is a basic human experience that we've, you know, we talk about, you know, in, in psychology a lot and it's talked about philosophically, and people know it to be true that we have this free will. Uh, but uh, self-will is more this forcing quality in life. It's a pushing. It's a demanding. It's uh, maybe wanting things when they're not, they're maybe selfishly motivated. Again, it's to get your way. It's to uh, go along with pride. It's connected with pride, this arrogant pride, where you're trying to get over on people and win and triumph. And life is a battle from that point of view that you have to conquer. You have to beat out the next person. It's, it's uh, a paranoid game when you're into your own self-will. It's that forcing quality. Fear is an interesting uh, point of view because in psychology, we understand fear as a development, often of trauma, psychic injury. You have optimal development. Your fear levels go down. But, you know, we're all human and no one has perfect development. And even if we did, we'd probably still have some fear because that's a human condition. And sometimes fear is functional. Again, we've talked about this in the past. If a lion is chasing you, you better run. You better know. <laughs> you better know it's time to move on. You don't get out of there. But we're talking more about this neurotic fear, where you know you. It's hard when you walk through life. You're worried about what people think. You're worried about the next thing that comes along. You're 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 running ahead, trying to fix things that happen in the future. You know, so you're not living in the now. You may be preoccupied with the past and trying to fix things in the past by some compulsion you have, some anxiety you have, uh, trying to 
ward off certain experiences. So it's a way of living your life where you don't accept life on life's terms, but it has to be a certain way, you know, and you're always preoccupied and fearful. It's not going to go your way. So the, the alternate to that is a sense of peace and equanimity and resilience where, again, you don't have to have life go your way all the time. You can, I mean, it's great if it does sometimes, but if it doesn't, again, it's a signpost to something you need to learn in yourself. And, uh, and if you go through life running away from fear and experience, you're always running, right? Rather than feeling like, no, you can handle it. If, if you have some depressing news or sad news, unhappy kind of results or something, you know, interviews or jobs or you know, any kind of thing it might be, even health issues. If you, if you feel like you can't stand it and you have to run from that rather than you, you feel it, you understand it, you understand what you can do to improve things, you keep a positive attitude, uh, and you use the information you learn from your unhappiness to elevate yourself, to see what you've done, what's your part in your unhappiness, what you do to continue it, what maybe you've done to create it, what you can do to move forward that you perhaps resisted from, so things like this. What perhaps, uh, like for example, you know, if you have uh, an issue like with some some people are life coaches here and psychotherapists. If your practice goes down, right? You can be very unhappy. Your practice goes down. You're trying to ward that off. You don't want to experience it. It's life's fault. You know, I haven't gotten enough referrals, etc. Or you can say, well, what what's going on? What can I do differently? What can I offer people, people differently? How can I present myself differently that may uh, allow me to have the kind of clients I want or would like to serve, you know, myself. And and then so there, we, there you're trying to change it from a, a woundedness or a self-pity or a problem-focused thing to, to solution-focused, where you're trying to find what you can do to change. And, and if you approach things that way, they change. It may not change right this minute, but you start to change the way you're going about life in certain areas. And things improve uh, as long as you're willing to pay the price. I mean, maybe if you're a, a therapist or a life coach, maybe you got to get a little bit more training. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's attitudinal. Uh, are you trying to give your best each time? Are you, uh, you know, are you uh, coming from a up high position? You know, trying to lecture people rather than listen and meet where they're at and then talk to them about things that you can offer to help. Things like that, you see, you, you may learn different areas. That's just one example. So um, these are really important uh, elements in ourself. So, you know, what about this irrigated pride? You see, if here's the thing, like Rumi's guest house, the way you want to deal with it is, is not to repress it, suppress it, and hope that it goes away. It goes under the rug, so it goes away. What you want to do, paradoxically, is let yourself know when you feel this arrogance. Let yourself know when you feel um, you feel less, you might say, pained about your neighbor's troubles than your own, less humiliated than the, the, your neighbor's humiliation that you recognize empathically. Things like that, that you feel it. Even, even worse, maybe you feel joy, some kind of sense of happiness in other people's misfortune. Okay, this is human, it's not great, 
But as you bring this out and witness it and get psychic distance from it, feelings begin to change. They detoxify. And you can't change feelings just by willing them differently in the moment. Okay, I don't feel that way. Well, you feel that way, it's deeper than that. It's like the parasympathetic nervous system. It's deeper. You can't really change that very easily by willpower. But you can if over time, for instance, if you're too tense and you're a type A personality and you get certain things going on, high blood pressure, you're just forcing, and you're all tense all the time and you get physically ill. If you learn how to relax, if you learn how to let go of some of your forcing, let, let go of some of your fear that if you don't succeed so much, you're a horrible person, these kind of unconscious, semi-conscious assumptions about yourself and your life, then over time you can relax and your parasympathetic, uh, parasympathetic nervous system may change a little bit. Same thing with feelings. As you see them, as you witness them, as you say to yourself, gee, I'd like to feel better, you could pray that, you, that the feelings change. You can also meditate. You know, this is what I'd like. I would like this uh, feeling of what? Hubris, or I like this feeling of disconnect or pleasure in someone else's misfortune to, to dissipate. I'd like to feel, you know, what other people, caring about other people such that if they hurt, I hurt a little bit. I don't take pride in it, you know, so much. And over time, over time, as you go through life, it doesn't happen right now. It starts to change, and you start to feel your neighbor as yourself more and more, and love your neighbor as yourself more and more, and then you transcend, you see? In some sense, we are the neighbor, and the neighbor is us. And as you begin to empathically resonate with that in, on an experiential level, not just a theoretical level, now you, your universal consciousness opens up. You experience the world in yourself and yourself in the world and the oneness of all that. And it's quite a remarkable experience. When these feelings occur to you at times, it's like liberating, you get chills, you get tingles and stuff. So um, just for example. So uh, anyway, that's a bit of a nutshell example. Uh, if you, as you let go of your self-will and you're forcing and you don't have to force yourself away from unhappiness all the time or have to get your way and have people change for you, but you see what you can do to help you uh, have your needs fulfilled in a realistic way, not a demanding, forcing way, by giving as much as you can get, by you know being part of life and giving your best to life. Life starts to come back to you. It's not forcing. It's offering your best self and waiting patiently sometimes by, to, for life to come back to you in ways that are, are fulfilling. And fear, as you give up your fear all along the way, and these, these faults are all connected, and you develop resilience and courage and the capacity to deal with uh, frustration. You know that frustration won't kill you, won't harm you. You can handle it. You don't always have, your way to, have to have your way to be happy. People don't always have to do this or that for you to be happy. They don't always have to think you're the most special person around for you to be happy. You, you, you detach from that. And it's work, but then you feel this liberation, yeah? That over time, you begin to feel it, that, you know, you're a free person. And you walk through life with more ability to handle the ups and downs and the no's or the troubles or whatever, your frustration uh, with grace, yeah? And then your higher self, your universal self blossoms more, yeah. Okay, well, Joshua... Uh, I just let that rip, and uh, 
hopefully it speaks to a lot of people in ways and maybe we can hear what you think and then we'll have a dialogue about it. How's that sound? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I noticed, I felt like there was an, like I really liked how you picked all three of these because there's an interconnection, I feel like. Like imagine if you have this self-will and it's like associated with having to force things or control things and have them be a particular way your way yeah. and right now right now this minute <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. yes <clears throat> and and i and i wrote uh so with that control that need to control i can see where that could also be linked to fear where people have fear of this situation happening or this thing happening or this thing not happening and so then they try to control and exert that force on will so that because of this fear. And so um, I don't exactly know how this pride, this arrogated pride might play into that where, because I wrote down invisible wounds. So I feel like these come from wounds that people have that may they may not even know that they have and that this need to control is or this fear this overwhelming fear uh or this pride comes from a space of themselves that they don't even see that they don't even know they just know that surface layer of i need to control this and I'm, I'm afraid of this i don't want this to happen uh, or like i'm better than people like um i have to be better than people i have to be the best and i'm not better i'm worst if i'm not the yeah. best I'm the worst there's kind of a duality duality right you know? yes I'm yes you're exalted or i'm shit, right you know it can't just be a regular person who has self-confidence and has an opinion right that kind of thing yeah yeah. but also makes mistakes yeah. yeah yeah and um and so like one of the the things that first stood out to me was the self-will and this like this forcing as opposed to like i'm trying to get my way and i'm trying to get it right now as opposed to meeting my needs because I think that comes from a space of people are trying to get their needs met. And there's some psychological energy internally that's really ramped up if they're put into a space where they're trying to control and trying to exert their will really intensely on a situation to get them this thing that they feel like they need. And they might want it really strong, but it's probably because of some unmet need internally and so i guess i just wanted to bring up and ask about like how do you distinguish between this healthy meeting of needs denial of your needs and forcing things to get your needs met great question great question <clears throat> well um I'll take a stab at that one. So uh, three different alternatives, yeah, you might say. So 
the forcing is is the difficulty. It's the demanding. It's this urgency. Again, I was going to talk about desire too. Maybe we'll talk about that next time. But this sense, what you know, there's a healthy desire, healthy needs, healthy wishes, healthy longing. But it doesn't contain this demanding. You have to do it, or I'm going to perish. And you know, manipulation or pushing or guilt tripping of the other person or withholding and punishing them by you withholding yourself if they don't give you what you want. This all goes along with self-will and demands and forcing, as opposed to um, kind of, as I talked about, kind of a relaxed, easygoing will, which is that you want this. You Maybe you want a person to like you or you want to, you know, get a good job or something. And you, so in that frame of reference, those are needs, you know, vocation, taking care of yourself, people like you. Okay, fair enough. Those are not unhealthy. But if you, so if you come to them with how do you get people like you? Well, you know, if you like people, you give to people emotionally, I'm not talking about financial necessarily. You give to people emotionally, you try to enjoy them, you know, you, you, you display kindness when they need it, you're empathic with them you begin to see that you often get it back. <clears throat> now, if you don't get it back from a particular person, maybe you're barking up the wrong tree, or you can only get so much from that person, you know, that kind of thing. And perhaps this is how good friendships are structured and even good love, romantic relationships are structured. When people have this simpatico and they meet each other's needs voluntarily, right? But, you know, certain friends you get so much from and certain other ones you get more from or different things from. And then you recognize that. And you let it be, but you do your best. And then you have patience for when it comes. Yeah. Uh, if it never comes, maybe you say, well, okay, that's not going to come from that direction. And then you go to someone else. With a job, you make sure you're willing to pay the price. Are you trained? Is it something you can do? If it's not, what do you got to do to be prepared to do the job? How do you make yourself an asset on the job? How do you make yourself indispensable to them? What can you give? And if it's not too much, you try to find more or try to develop more. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Maybe it's this um, air, you know, we got bad air here in Michigan. It's uh, Yeah, those fires. Canadian fires are really making the air quality poor. So anyway, those, those are a couple of examples. Now, the third alternative is the idea these are different faults to, uh, you know, you withdraw above, you know, you like you, you put distance and you pretend you don't care and you don't need things which isolate you from life. And it's just really not true because we have human needs for social relationships and closeness and love and to give love, right? That kind of thing. So if you do that, you're just kidding yourself and you're kind of putting yourself in isolation. And then life gets harder and harder and your, and your loneliness gets harder and harder. And believe me, you know, just what I, we, probably you know this too, Joshua, if you look into loneliness, the long pe longer people are lonely, the more bitter they get, the more angry they get, they get agitated, they don't know why. But just the loneliness is, causes anger because you have an unmet need you're not even recognizing, a need for contact. And, and when you don't get it, you get frustrated and mad. And if you repress that, you don't know why you're bitter and angry and cynical all that, but that's what happens with people, they get lonely, and then they get more and more negativistic, and perhaps more and more paranoid, people are just trying to take from me, they just want, they don't, they're not nice to me, and 
because you know you're withdrawing from them, not giving of yourself, being cold to them, and what you get back is that. But you you lose track of cause and effect. You don't connect the dots that you're creating that situation, and you know you get a very unhappy person that way until they start to see and connect the dots and see what they're doing. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so the other concern, at least with my practice, that I've seen is this denial of needs. Yeah. The denial of these parts of ourselves. Oh, that that I don't have that. Or it's like that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm like. They like they can't really admit to themselves certain things, and that I think leads to some of these dynamics as well. Is that like, well, I'm a, I'm a afraid of that part of myself, or like I have to control this in me, like I, I have to deny this for whatever reason of past experiences, um, that this part of me is better than this part of me, and, um, but that like, I don't know. I just, I guess we're, I, I'm straying a little bit from this, but. Um, it's okay. You're doing fine. Actually, <clears throat> there's this like um, this denial that I think that there's this like there's between the forcing and the allowing things to come. There's also this like, well, I'm choosing to deny myself this need or this thing for a reason, right? Or there's like, oh, I don't even have that. Like some of my clients, they don't even know about things going on internally. They don't even know they have these needs. They, uh, they, all the needs are other people's needs is also a thing. Um, And so, I guess I don't know how to tie this in. That's just where my brain is going. Yeah, no, let me, let me respond. So uh, there's one element you talked about is is renouncing. Sometimes you you do need to renounce, at least temporarily. So I'm not going to get um, affection from this person, or I'm not going to get esteem from this person, or I'm not going to get this job, or I have, you know, I have uh, kind of negative needs sometimes to, uh, you know, be be cynical and, and negativistic to people, which causes a vicious cycle. And you can renounce that. You can You can have this urge or this kind of negative need to want to express this stuff because you get feel dysregulated. You're so used to doing it all the time. But you can consciously contain it and renounce and say, well, I'm just not going to do that right now. Maybe I, maybe I'm ne- it's not I'm never going to do it. And sometimes it might be playfully acceptable to do it. But you, basically, you, you can say, I'm not going to do it. That's renunciation, right? <clears throat> or I'm going to deal with my frustration of... Um, you know, not getting this person's approval, and I'm not going to be tied to it. So I want, I want her to like me. I want her, but she's not going to do it or like my opinion about something. She's not going to, she's not going to agree with me. Okay, I don't have to have it. That's renunciation too. That's different than somebody perhaps of long standing says, "Well, I don't really need people, or I don't need people much, or I'm, you know." I, people treat me bad. I, I don't really care for people. They might not care for people. It's true. But that doesn't mean they don't long for people. So what do you do as a coach or, or a therapist is you reflect. 
you know, when they get all dysregulated over little things, you know, somebody something doesn't go their way, they missed an appointment with somebody for lunch that they rarely have, and they're upset of all to no end, you know, dysregulated. You say, you know, see, I think this was very important to you. And uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's why you get so upset and you don't have many lunches or you don't have many con much contact with people. And it's clear that you're really, really upset about this. Oh, no. Well, you're acting like it. It sounds like to me you feel like it. I think it's just hard for you to get anxious to know that you care. You're anxious about knowing that you care and that you long for this. Ah, maybe. So then you got something, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so it's an interpretation through reflection on the, what's showing up, you know, in the room or on your screen these days. There's a lot of coaching and therapy that goes on on the screen. But anyway, through their narrative, through their dialogue, right? You reflect on it, yeah, when it shows. And uh, that's kind of how we do it. Sometimes you let them have, they don't care. Okay, because they really need to have that for the moment. But maybe the next session you reflect on it when their defense is down and they're, they're not trying to defend their ego or something. Then it's easier to do these kind of reflections and then people are more receptive, yeah. For sure, for yeah. sure. And and so then that goes into the pride, self-will, and fear that people who have this arrogant pride, this self-will, and this fear are typically like outside of the circle of people who have more healthy functioning let's say so the people with healthy functioning will be like oh, i don't really want to interact with these people i don't really like that energy you know yeah unless they're i think the two things you know if they're at near the same kind of more closer to the same level and they got enough friends well then they don't want to do it now but sometimes it's somebody in your family for example, somebody you've known a long time, you try to do the best you can because you care about them despite the fact that they have porcupine quills and stuff. You try to care anyway. Yeah, but it's not somebody you don't you meet that you're going to be really say, oh boy, I want to have a good friendship with that person. That doesn't usually happen. But it may be, again, somebody that you care about longstanding and you, and you deal with them that way. <clears throat> Another one is if you're much higher, and your relationship is asymmetrical, higher in development, mature. I don't know. I don't mean this in an irrigated way. But, you know, you're, you're more mature. You're better off. And you can handle some of this stuff, right? You can, so they're a little porcupine. Okay. And, uh, and maybe it's a work relationship that's asymmetrical or something like that. And so you are more therapeutic for some reason. I don't know. Maybe they're in your church or your mosque or something and you're trying to help somebody. You, you know, you, you approach them differently and you, and you deal with some of their slings and arrows that they throw your way. Okay, you know, you may not have great friendship, but you, you may have some level of, of uh, communication, cooperation, kindness, interactiveness with them. That's important to them because you're a leader. You're, you're, you're trying to help them. And that's something you choose to do, right? That's a little different, but you're probably not going to have a lot of mutuality with that person where they're symmetrical and, you know, they get you and you get them. And basically you're kind of on the same level, you might say, or in the same arena where you understand each other a lot. That, that's also the kind of people that we usually become friends with, right? 
that kind of thing. <clears throat> yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of speaking for the people who might recognize some of these qualities and uh, sort of speaking to that. And then, so then this process of transforming these things, um, I, I wrote down the invisible wounds because my orientation is, is there's wounds that are behind it. And if you heal the wounds, then that maladaptive pattern goes away. And um, someone's knocking on the door. Give me a sec. Yeah, okay. So let's, that happens in these, <laughs> these days. We get interrupted. Yeah, well, the room reservation changed, I guess. Uh, okay. I'll send an email. Um, so, um, that the, uh, there's a time space. So like when we're processing these things, like in sessions, sometimes I have clients that don't want to go places really badly. And one of the reasons is this emotional carryover. Like they don't want to, they, they want to, one, they don't want to feel the feeling at all typically. And then two, they don't want to feel it and then not be able to put it back in the box to be able to like contain it and leave the session not feeling still re-regulated. And I think that in wondering about how we can work and talk about these things and start to process and try to transform and change these things, like that consideration of time and how like it takes it, it's a negative experience often going into these places but then how do we come out feeling re-regulated so that we can carry on and sort of keep that contained in that space yeah oh, well that's another good question and <clears throat> so so they may have had childhood hurts even trauma right and sometimes when we redo the trauma and read the trauma and see how we've developed negative patterns from the psychic injury or the trauma, such as shame-based behavior, which is get having dependency on everybody else to like us because we don't like ourselves very much. Okay, so that's that's kind of how that works in a you know one example of how it works. And some people want to review their trauma independently of the events in their life right now, which happens sometimes, some of these therapies like EMDR, trauma therapy, you can do that. And some people want to do that. They're ready to go, right? But many people don't want to go there like that. You have to go to the here and now, find the problem that they're facing. Maybe they have social anxiety, for example, and they go in a room and they think everybody doesn't like them. And so they kind of, they don't want to be there. They think people don't like them. They, they, but they don't know, see, that they're probably repressing their own antipathy, their own judgments, their own negativity. All they see is their fear. And so what one needs to do then as a helper of whatever kind is to begin to help them see that they're probably, um, they probably have within them some of the thing, same things they fear that they might get in the room. Judgments, just dislike, basically people fundamentally dislike them. Well, if, if they start to look at themselves and you talk about their anxiety about perhaps seeing this in themselves, which is their shadow, right? And start to transform their shadow and start to let it go, recognize it and over time, let it go. Pretty soon, maybe not that soon, but soon enough, the room starts to feel less threatening. 
And they may also, in the process of, of talking about their antipathy, their judgments or criticism, they may talk about woundedness, the critical parents who they've internalized their voices. And they say, you know, okay, we need to challenge that, you know. You're a good person. You have these strengths and all that. So you've internalized some of that. And part of what's happened, too, is that you've taken the wound, the hurt, and you've, you know, you've let it uh, cause this love outrage, they call it, this anger, you know, because, uh, you know, you're wounded and you think everybody else is kind of going to be like them. So you, you're judgmental. You want to rise above them. You want to arrogate yourself so that you don't feel woundedness. You feel invulnerable when you arrogate, which isn't true. There's another cognitive distortion. And you challenge that. And then over time, life feels safer, right? So you're working on the past wound and the here and now trouble kind of simultaneously. But you kind of back into it in a softer way than just reviewing their history. Yeah? Because most people don't want to just review their history. They say, oh, that's stuff, that's stupid stuff. <laughs> but if if you start to connect the dots a little bit, then it comes naturally, it's not so stupid. It feels more self-evident. It feels more experienced near without having to apply theory to it, you know, to start, right? Yeah. That's kind of how it works best, I think. <clears throat> okay yeah yeah so uh, unless you're a trauma therapist then sometimes you go right after it that's different people come in often than wanting to work on their trauma you know, let's talk about it right now but a lot of people maybe most people don't want to do that just like that right yeah, yeah. for sure 100 yeah. percent. okay any last thoughts uh you know joshua before we're getting near the time we have to stop we have to stop i know no, no, I think that was that was a good, good time. Okay, yeah, I thought so too. And uh, we applied it. What was really good here is we applied it to some case examples, uh, and uh, you know, different different uh, issues that may arise in treatment or coaching. And uh, so that's I, hopefully that'll be helpful to people. So it's a way to transform your shadow and become uh, change the shadow elements into something more virtuous. You know, pride into dignity, a self-will into easygoing kind of positive aggression and assertion, and fear into courage and resilience. So this is what we want. And we sort of outlined some of the processes. If you review the, the, the video, you'll see them again. Some of the processes and how to do that. Okay. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Joshua. We'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks. Thanks.